from 1 Corinthians, and the topic I have been assigned is this. I want to talk today about Christ's love for you, his church. And I don't think that there is a more appropriate message to give right now. I don't think there's been a more appropriate message for my heart to prepare for than the one I'm going to give today. And I've been uh, kind of antsy all week, actually, to be able to share this with you. So let me pray for you, and uh, we'll begin. Lord, I pray for uh, everyone here in this room or everyone who might be joining us online. I pray that you would overwhelm us today with your love. I pray that you would make us different. And I pray even now that you will help me to treat your, uh, your infallible and authoritative word in a way that's worthy of you. So please help me to do that today. I ask this in Jesus' name alone. Amen. All right, I'm going to begin today by asking a Pretty simple question, but the wording of it might be unusual. Okay, here it is. How does Jesus feel about his church? How does Jesus feel about the church? Not does he love it or does he like it. How does he feel? Normally we don't talk about feelings a lot because they make us get all nervous. But how does Jesus feel about you? about us, about Kent City Baptist, about his bride throughout the entirety of the world, over generation after generation. How does he feel about us? I am the ripe old age of 32 years old. Everyone older than 32? There you go, Luke. Gotcha. Okay, and I put my faith in Jesus alone when I was 14 years old. And so I have lived longer now as a Christian than not, and for that I praise the Lord. I uh, went to a Christian college to prepare for a life of ministry, and so, you know, like any Bible school student, I got myself a pair of rose-colored glasses, and I threw them on, and I was there to figure out how to do this ministry stuff, you know, learn a few things, and then it'll be easy, right? Yeah, I heard some of you laugh, that's okay. All right, so I found myself quickly in my classes realizing something. I found that some people in my classes similar to what, why I came, genuinely wanted to do ministry. They were excited. They loved the church. They, in particular, loved their churches that they grew up in. And that was an amazing thing to see. There was zeal. There was excitement. But then there were others in my classes, some others who were rethinking the church. Some of them wanted to do away with the church altogether, thinking that it just simply didn't work. Some wanted to go back to the concept that we see in the early chapters of Acts with house churches. Some believed that their church leaders couldn't be trusted, therefore any authority couldn't be trusted. Some believed that the system was broken beyond repair and the church had simply become something different than what God had intended it to be. And so they, over their years, wrote off the church. Some others wrote off the church or just were frustrated, maybe is a better way to say it, because the people that they thought were supposed to be different, the people of the church, they experienced, ended up looking an awful lot like everybody else. Not different. I personally understand many of these sentiments, though I don't agree with them all, obviously. 
But I do get where they're coming from. I think today there's two realities that I want to hold in tension, and I hope I hold both of them as firmly as I can. The one, on the one hand, over here, today I want to talk about how much Jesus loves us. And so I'm thrilled to be able to do that. And I want to put as much passion and zeal behind that as I can muster, okay? But on the other hand, I also want to grab tightly to this reality and not let go. And it's this. The church doesn't always look like Jesus wants it to look. Can we acknowledge that as a church? That we don't always look the way Christ would have us look? We are loved. We are so loved. Yet, there's a lot of work to do. So I hope to bring out both of those things today. We're going to explore both of these realities this morning. And my prayer for you all week long is that Jesus' extraordinary love for his bride, which is us, would ignite and fuel our desire for holiness. That is my prayer. So please stand with me. I invite you to open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to begin in verse 25. If you look at verse 22, you'll likely have a heading in your Bible called Wives and Husbands, which is perfectly appropriate because this is one of the main passages of Scripture we go to to see the roles and the way that God has designed marriage, okay? So that's totally appropriate. However, I'm here to tell you today, I'm going to talk almost nothing about marriage. Is that okay? And it's not because... This passage is about marriage. It's because marriage is just a picture of a better, deeper, eternal reality that I hope God's Spirit wows us with today, okay? I'm going to start now at verse 25 and read through verse 32. It begins this way. Husbands, love your wives and love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be, what? Holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You may be seated. The first thing I want to, there's basically two halves to the sermon. The first half is this. I want to talk about Jesus's extraordinary love for his bride, which just so happens to be you. Okay? The first thing we see in verse 25 about Jesus' love for his church is this. Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. Giving himself up for her. 
This is sacrificial surrender, and this is the first uh, sub-point of this, of this slide here. This is Jesus and how he gave himself up. I want to warn you that I'm about ready to say a few cultural buzzwords that we've been hearing an awful lot lately. Okay? Is that all right if I do that? I told first service, and I'll tell you too, I think a good sermon offends everybody. Is that, is that okay? Because we're just going to go for it here today, okay? Here's a list that I've compiled, not exhaustive because I'm so, so finite, okay? But here is a list of what Jesus gave up or surrendered for every single one of us in this room. Here they are. He gave up his rights. He gave up his privileges. He gave up his divine prerogatives. He gave up his unique position of authority. He gave up the eternal Trinitarian fellowship that he experienced for all time with the Father and the Spirit to become like us. A baby, no less. He gave up every possible thing that we could, we could never really attain. But he gave all of this stuff up that we've never even had so that we could be made holy. He gave up all of these things. He came as a baby, the most dependent creature that you could imagine. He needed every day his mother's milk just to survive. This is God we're talking about. He needed that to survive. He cried with a feeble child's voice when he was hungry. He needed God, needed to be changed so that he didn't sit in human filth. God experienced growing pains. He probably had to deal with the embarrassment of acne like we've all had to deal with. He likely got sick like we do. He experienced temptations his entire life to sin, but refuted them all, especially when he was directly tempted by the devil in Matthew 4, resisted to the uttermost. He endured trials that we could not endure, fame that we could never imagine handling, and then to top it all off, he suffered as a criminal, which he did not deserve, so that you and I could be forgiven and made free. This is what we celebrate every Christmas, friends. This is the incarnation. This is God become man. This is God giving up everything so that we could know him. Do you feel his love for you? Do you get it? He gave up everything so that we could be forgiven and free. He gave up his perfect life for his imperfect bride, and that's us. He handed over the most eternally precious, valuable, and worthy thing in the universe, his own life, for a bride who would reject it and turn to other lovers. Do you feel loved yet? This is what Jesus has done for us. He gave up everything he shouldn't have had to for you and I. I want to take you to a brief illustration, and this is Ezekiel chapter 16. I want you to flip there now, maybe put a bookmark in it and read it later, uh, because this is such a vivid and shocking illustration that with some children in here, I'm actually not going to read it, but I am going to summarize it for you. Israel, God's people, had proven herself over and over again as a faithless bride, having turned repeatedly from God and then gave herself to other lovers. 
continued to give herself over to idolatry. In short, the way we might express this is this. Israel looked just like everyone else around them. And so Ezekiel in chapter 16 shows us the tender care and tender heart of God and how he gave himself to this adulterous bride. Ezekiel saw a glimpse of how God saw Israel, and it's not a pretty picture. If you're skimming through it right now, you'll see. He explains his people Israel as if they were like a stillborn child that was cast out into a field, laying dead in her own blood, pitied by no one, and discarded. Now that's an image. And it shows God's heart for his own people in that the first word you see in this passage from God is he goes over to his adulterous bride and he says one word. He says, live. God takes what was once dead and discarded and disgusting and he makes it something beautiful. Listen to the language. It says he made her to flourish like a plant. She grew tall, she matured, but then it says she was still bare. So what does God do in his tender care? Well, he covers her up. He makes a vow to her. He enters into a covenant with her, and it says that she became his. He bathed her with water. He washed off all the blood from her. He clothed her with fine clothing and adorned her with expensive jewelry. She grew exceedingly beautiful. Now, I want to ask, what did Israel do to deserve this? Anything? No, she rebelled. <laughs> That's what she brought to the table, was rebellion. But God, in his tender care, in his extraordinary love for his bride, reaches out to sinners to save them. Now, I want to ask the question for us, what did you do to deserve this incredible love? Nothing. Nothing at all. You see, nobody else would do this for you. Some people might have good intentions and might sound all romantic. I would die for you. But really, nobody would die for somebody like this, someone who hated them but God. If you're here this morning and you believe somewhere in the recesses of your brain or this is a temptation that comes to you at times, and you believe that God can't really love you like this, that this sounds too good to be true in some way, that he's probably favorably inclined to some people, just probably not to you. If you believe somehow that God's character coerces him against his own will to love you because he doesn't really actually like you or enjoy you very much, if you think these things, friend, know this. Jesus loved you when you were at your worst. He loved you when you were at your worst. Listen to this from Romans 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, you finish it. Christ died for us. This is the heart of God. This is the love of God for us. This is how much Jesus loves his church. This is how Jesus feels about his church. I posted earlier this week on Facebook that as I'm writing this sermon, I was running out of words. 
Because trying to express the vastness and the depth of the love of God, it's near impossible. Okay, I am so limited, and so I've just been praying that God's spirit, like a branding iron, would press this into our hearts so we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt how much our Father in heaven loves us. That is what I hope happens as a result of this sermon. God is love. Another way that we can say this is this. For all of you who are Christians, your sin moved God's heart to save you. We often think that God in his holiness sees our sin and he's repulsed by us. But our very sins drew him to want to save in compassion. That's the heart of our God. Our suffering, our weakness, our sin doesn't distance us from God, but instead it compels his love. It compels his desire to rescue and show mercy. His very heart was moved with affection from you. Every one of you who claim Christ. And this is when you were at your worst. If that's not good enough, there's a third point to this slide. You ready? All right, take a deep breath because this is my favorite part of the sermon. All right? Take with me another look at uh, starting at verse 28 of this passage. Now, this is a wild comparison, but it's invigorating. So I want to spend just a, a moment to explain it as best as I can. Okay, starting in verse 28. I'll read through 28 through 30 again. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Why? Because, verse 30, we are members of his body. Let me flesh this one out for a moment. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies precisely because Jesus loves his own body, which is you. Okay, let's walk through it. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. Why? Well, there could be many even good biblical answers to this, but I don't think any of them captures what this passage is getting after. Some of them might be this. It could be because selfless love is shown in the great commandment, to love others as ourselves. Sure, could be, to love our neighbor as ourselves. It could also be because God is love, and so we, therefore, should love one another. That's possible. It could also be because God created us in his own image, and therefore, he created men uniquely to, to care and protect the vulnerable. Okay? Maybe. But I believe this passage teaches us something even deeper than that. Husbands and wives have become what? The two have become you guys can talk out loud, it's okay. The two have become good. Understand the mystery that Paul is referring to here. In verse 31, he quotes back from Genesis 2, verse 24, telling us about marriage. He says, a man leaves his father and his mother, and then he cleaves to his wife. Many times, because things rhyme and we like it, leave and cleave. It's so easy, it sounds so good, right? <laughs> leave and cleave. He doesn't just leave mom and dad's house, though, and create a new house. No, no, no. The two have become one. You got it. That's why Paul says in verse 28 that he who loves his wife loves himself. 
the two have become one. So therefore, husbands and me, every act of love that I demonstrate to my wife reveals that I love myself because she is actually a part of me now. Okay? That makes sense? The two have become God. You and I now become we and us. That's how we operate in a good marriage, okay? That's marriage. But as I told you, this sermon's not much about marriage, is it? No. This sermon is about Jesus and the church. So let's take the analogy where it should go. Jesus loves the church because, like how marriage demonstrates in an inferior and temporary way, because the church is a part of Jesus now. We sang this earlier, didn't we? We are the body. We are the body of Christ, church. When Jesus gave up his life for the church, he accomplished everything necessary for our union with him, our union with Christ. We used to be, this is our problem, everybody. We used to be, should I stay here, Mark, for the pulpit? Okay, I'll just use my arms a lot like this. And now I'm on TV. Now I'm self-conscious. Okay, no. We used to be an atom over here, which is our perpetual problem. In Adam, we find sin, we find guilt, we find shame, we find condemnation. That's not a good place to be. But, but here's the bad news. We all start there. Okay? And our problem is being an Adam. What we need to be is taken out of the old man, Adam, and put into the perfect man, Christ. That's why the New Testament refers to Christians almost... Like the vast majority of times, it's calling them in Christ because we have been unified with him. Remember how I said in marriage, the two have become one? The two, God's people and Jesus as the head, have become one. We have been now placed in Christ. And so we have Jesus who is the head of the body and we have the church who is the body of the body. The two become one. And this is where it gets wild. Okay, In verse 29, now this makes sense. Paul writes, no one hates his own flesh. But what does he do instead? Two words. He nourishes and cherishes it. How? Just as Christ does the church. Why? Because we, church, are members of his body. This is an astounding mystery. That's why at the very end, Paul says, yeah, this is certainly a mystery. And it's a profound one at that. Because it's so rich and deep. What this means for you, Christian, is this. Jesus can't hate you any more than he could hate himself. Do you understand that? He can't hate you any more than he could actually hate himself. So when we say God is love, that's what we mean, and we mean you've been united with him. So therefore, he loves you exactly as he loves himself in perfection. And he doesn't mess up love. Our God defines love. He doesn't mess it up. This is an astounding reality. And because of this, because he gave himself for you to unite you with him forever, it means all of these things. You ready? <laughs> and more. We are now co-heirs with Jesus to all that the Father has given him, which is everything. Okay? On top of that, because we are in Christ, we are now going to live together, live together forever because he is life itself. We stand right now in his righteousness 
because we are united with him in his life, living perfectly on our behalf. We're united with him in his death so that we will never, ever experience condemnation. And on top of that, we are united with him in his resurrection, proving the fact that we one day will rise just as certainly as he rose from the dead. And so that's why even, guys, at your, at your dad's funeral yesterday, we are a people of hope. We are because Christ has risen and we have been united with him, and this is not the end of the story. Friends, this is what we mean when we say Jesus loves you. Does the good news get any better than this? This is our gospel. This is what we as a people ought to be about, proclaiming this extravagant love to a world who knows nothing of it. I hope you see now how deeply Jesus cherishes his bride. But now I want to switch to the second part of the sermon, which is this. I want to show you how deeply Jesus is committed to his bride's holiness. Verse 25 states that Jesus gave himself up for his wife. Why? For what purpose? Well, look at verse 26. Verse 26 says he did this so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be what? A little louder. Holy and without blemish. I've been to uh, many weddings in my life, uh, as you probably have as well, and in many respects, they're all different, but in one respect, they're all the same. You know the moment I'm talking about. This is the jaw-dropping moment, okay? This is the moment when the processional has already kind of started, everybody gets in place, and then there's this awkward feeling in the room because there's this sense of anticipation, right? And you see in the front row some of the parents and families stand up, and they do what? They turn around. Why do they turn around? Who's coming? The bride is coming. This is the moment where all of us, in, you know, we all get goosebumps and we're all like, here we go. And you look around and you see a woman who is giving herself to a man up here and you see radiance, right? You see a white dress. You see beauty. You see splendor. You have the awe moment that we're supposed to have. Now, now, I remember my wedding day vividly, just like I described it just then. <laughs> really. When I caught my first glimpse of Callie walking toward me in a stunning white dress, her eyes fixed upon me of all people, because I know that whole time I'm like, she's settling. This is not a wise choice for her. There's way better options. In fact, all the guys lined up with me are better options, but anyway. She had a flower set perfectly in her gorgeous hair, and I saw her staring at me, and I was stunned. And I actually, if you want to, this is for fun later, if you want to go back to probably 2,000 Facebook photos, you'll find this, 09, somewhere around 2010, and you'll see that I had the dorkiest look on my face that whole time. I'm like... You know, and it's been captured for everybody to see. They're wonderful. 
But I didn't care what I looked like at all because I was beholding my bride. And that's the point. Jesus gave himself up for us, for the church, so that we would be radiant and holy. Listen to the words used in this passage that go on the screen here. Sanctified, cleansed, washed, splendid or in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish or any such thing. In a nutshell, Jesus made his bride holy. This is what he did. He wanted her to be radiant so that his church, us, we would shine like stars in a darkened sky. That we would look different than everybody else in the world. I believe this passage would have me ask this hard question, and it's this. Church, what do we look like to the world right now? What have we looked like in the world in the past five or six months? To be holy, by definition, means to be set apart, pulled out of one thing and set apart for something else. In our case, we have been set apart from our sin and our old ways of life and made holy to follow in the ways of Christ exclusively. We are called, therefore, to look different, friends, because we are different. We are. Christ has made us new. And if I can be frank for just a minute, I completely understand why some people, even many people, are tempted to check out of the church right now. The last few months have revealed an awful lot. They've revealed an awful lot about us and our hearts and our motives, more than we might even realize. Jesus said himself, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if we were to paraphrase this for our day, perhaps it would be this. Out of the abundance of the heart, the thumbs post. There's the awkward silence that happened in first service to you. <laughs> we have often, I don't think this defines us, but we have often demonstrated that we, as the Church of Christ, don't really look that different. That we are easily offended, that we're unforgiving, that we're quick to speak and slow to listen to people. We are, in fact, hopeless if our particular candidate doesn't make it past November. We have revealed that we are often unwelcoming to anyone who would dare have a differing opinion than us. Is this what Jesus wants for his bride? Thank you. We are a holy people who represent an entirely different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. We are sojourners and travelers here, but we represent something so much better than what we often get ourselves wrapped up into. We represent a different kingdom, we represent an entirely different way of life, and we are a people who pursue an entirely different goal than that which our neighbors are seeking. So if I could implore you with one thing today, it is this, be different than the world. Be different. Don't look like everyone else. Look holy. Look worthy of the groom. 
When we put our faith in Christ, we were made holy in one sense before God, absolutely. But we're also called to live holy now. If you remember the passage Callie read earlier, I'm not going to read it again, but it says, walk, manner in a wor- walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And it talks about patience and gentleness and the things of Christ. It doesn't talk about being excited with rage all the time. If you keep swallowing that pill, you're going to get exhausted. Remember the Ezekiel 16 passage? I didn't finish the story earlier. That was the story about the, uh, what Israel had become, like laying in a field dead there. After God took back his faithless bride who had ruined herself with sin, it says that he nourished and cared for her. And notice the similarities with Ephesians 5:29 of how Christ commands husbands to nourish and care for their wives because he nourishes and cares for us. Amazing. He washes her off, adorns her with extravagant jewelry and clothing. And then it says this in verse 14 of Ezekiel 16. It says, you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown, the reputation, okay, went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. God cleaned off Israel so that all those on earth would know that it is God who makes her beautiful. God has cleansed us, church, so that his renown and glory would go out into the nations. And that only works well if we look holy as we are. That's why God wants us, his bride, to be set apart now so that the world would have their jaw dropped at Christ's radiant bride. I have three short applications to end this sermon with, and then we will pray. The first one is this. To those in the church who are tempted right now to check out, you are frustrated, you're embittered, I get it. But I ask you to come back. I ask you to lean in, not lean away. And here's why. Jesus loves his bride. There's no getting around it. We are imperfect oftentimes a mess, but Jesus loves us. I invite you to lean in, have hard discussions with those who have sinned against you or that you have sinned against, and do not do this on Facebook. I wrote that in all caps, just so you all know. And be willing to forgive. It is hard, I know, we've all been there, but Christ demands it from us who follow him. I implore you not to give up on the bride. We are so loved, so come back. Secondly, to those in the church, those of you here in this room, I invite you to pursue the holiness of your groom. Israel failed to be holy as God called them to. Actually, if you finish reading Ezekiel 16, you're going to see that even after all of that treatment, Israel still turned away. May it not be so among us. Let us run to Christ and let Jesus wash us up and then let us commit to walking worthy of Christ who is our Savior, our head, and our groom. And lastly, I always want to mention this. Uh, To those of you who have not believed in this good news yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. It doesn't get any better than this. If you want to be loved and accepted and embraced with the heavenly tender care of Christ, Come to him today. If you have not, please talk to me afterwards. He will wash you up. He will call you his, and he will never, ever, ever let you go. Amen?
It doesn't get any better than belonging to 